derogatory thing. Why are they calling, you know, Ronaldo the GOAT? Why are they calling Tom Brady the GOAT? Why are they calling LeBron James a GOAT? And then only after a little bit did it dawn on me, the G-O-A-T stands for greatest of all time, okay? And there's a lot of conversations that go out that says, what's the greatest? Well, let me ask you, what is the greatest of all time? What vehicle? What's that? Vehicle, car. Greatest of all time, which one? 57 Chev? Subaru, any one of them? Okay. For me, anything that doesn't have payments on it and it's still running, okay? The greatest of all time books besides the Bible? Pilgrim's Progress? Linda, you're the, you're the literature woman here, Linda. Anything Shakespearean? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The greatest of all time um, romantic song. None of us want to even demonstrate or, or bring to talk about. Unchained melody. Unchained melody? Okay. I used to always sing to my younger brother when he would get a crush. Young love, first love, and he would throw things at me. Okay. Greatest of all time um, football player? Montana? Namath? Uh, do people debate these things? The greatest of all time? Okay, we can talk about the greatest of all time, you know, whether it be the president, the greatest of all time president, or a movie, or, you know, the greatest of all time discovery. The wheel? Electricity? <laughs> Not this time of the year, but yes, different time. So we have all these different ideas. And what's interesting is that while Jesus is preaching, all of a sudden they come up and they do one of these. They say, you know, tell us the goat, the greatest of all time when it comes to the commands. And if you do a little background study of what's happening, this is not an unusual question. Uh, just a few years before Jesus Christ was on the scene, 24 year, 20 years before Hillel, one of the leading rabbis that was teaching in that region of Jerusalem, he was asked and he wrote a, a large I'm going to say book at that time, that uh, was, what is the greatest of all commands? And he said this, what you would have men to do to you, you do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. Well, Jesus Christ comes on the scene, and about 100 years after, there's another famous, famous rabbi by the name of Akaba that he wrote that the, the greatest of all commands is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then, a few years after that, another individual said that the greatest of all commands is found in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 6, the idea of in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And so here they, they debated and it doesn't strike us odd because we do the same thing. What is the greatest? What is the most important? And so of the 613 different commands, they often would discuss what is the greatest command. And in Jesus' time, that was a discussion. So for them to come to him on that Tuesday before he dies and one of the scholars, now we read in Mark chapter 12, jumping into the text, that one of the scholars comes up to Jesus, verse 28, one of the scribes, one of the lawyers, one of those who is the professional teacher, a professor, whatever you want to call him, an academician, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, he asked, what is the first commandment or the greatest commandment of all of them? And so he's posing it to Jesus. 
Matthew, if you do the cross, uh, the cross passage, Matthew says that he asked this question because he was tempting Jesus. That fits into all these other questions that the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Pharisees had asked about whose husband will this, uh, whose wife will that, will that woman be when they get into the resurrection? Uh, you know, shall we pay tribute to Caesar? They're trying to trip Jesus up. They were trying to embarrass him. They were trying to uh, erode some of his popularity. So they're challenging Jesus in the temple proper while he is teaching. And every time that they pose a question, he turns the tables on them. And he kind of flips things around and they end up with egg on their face in these debates. This man comes... And this man, who is a leader, his is a different question in the sense. Now, he's coming tempting, but by the end of the conversation, is the, there seems to be a twist and a, a turn in this man's thinking. Well, let me just throw something out before we get into the essence of the answer. When he's asking the questions, um, he did this. He did commend Jesus and his other answers. And when he's asking the questions, he is dry, driving Jesus to the law. He isn't the one. All the others were talking about what was their interpretations of, of some of their beliefs and some of their ideas about the resurrection and about, you know, how, what about the Romans. But he's the only one that says, tell me about the law and drives Jesus back to choosing something in the law, uh, in the written scriptures. And then when Jesus gives an answer, what's really interesting is how it concludes. Verse 32, And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, or a very good answer, Master, you have said the truth, for there is one God and there is none other but he, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all the, the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, discreetly, he said unto him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And nobody asked any other questions after that. And so Jesus was judging this man who was coming to test Jesus. But when it's all done, this man gives an indication. This man, this Pharisee, this scribe, who meant to test, but who used the law, this man seems to have been impacted by Jesus' answer, and he agrees with Jesus. He isn't going to walk away the way the others walked away. Which, by the way, leads me to come to a conclusion that's a very important conclusion that you and I don't constantly assume this. Let's not assume that every single Pharisee, every religious leader, that all of them were corrupt and politically motivated. Um, we often think this. We often think that, oh, all the Pharisees jumped on the bandwagon. They drank the Kool-Aid. They, they were all robbing. There probably were some moral, principled Pharisees. This happens to be one that he ends up showing that he's principled, he's not a party liner, so to speak. And, uh, and, and that would probably lend to maybe him being, I don't know this, but him being one of those in the book of Acts that ends up responding to the gospel. And so anyway, this man, it's very interesting that Jesus said, you know, you're close to the kingdom. In other words, you're starting to accept truth. You're, you're more principled, you're more truth-based than you are political party line. Don't you wish that were true of even the politicians today? Go by principle rather than party line. And so here this man, he has that conversation, and that's a whole discussion. But let's focus in on the answers that Jesus gives. When Jesus responds at this time, he is going to say and basically describe what he believes, what he as God, God incarnate, what he thinks is the most important parts of the law. And something that strikes me is, 
if this is the most important part of the law, not only should it be attended to, but I'm going to, I'm going to pose it this way. If this is the most important part of the law, carrying this out, acting this way, isn't that what should characterize the followers of Christ? They should be characterized by what he says, this is the most important aspect. Uh, let me see if I can illustrate this way. When we start talking about different people's groups, when we start talking about different age groups, we have stereotypical responses and, and understanding. If we say, okay, uh, what are Italians known for? Pizza? Pizza? <laughs> they didn't even make it. You know. Is there a stereotypical response that I all, you know, most of the Italians can really cook and eat? Okay. What about redheads? Jay, what about redheads? What do we... What's that? Fire. Well, I don't know about that. Okay. <laughs> okay. What do we know about Germans? What's stereotypical about Germans? Temper as well? Machinist. Machinist. Okay. When we talk about the Americans who travel abroad, what's the stereotypical? Rich. Okay, all Americans are rich. Well, that's, that's true, isn't it? Okay. What, what are we normally, what are we perceived as? The loud, boisterous, arrogant individual? Okay. Um, when we start talking about different, uh, different, well, let me throw this. When people start talking about the Jews, stereotypical money, business-oriented, yeah, okay. What's the stereotypical idea about two-year-olds? Terrible dudes, okay. <laughs> yeah. What's the stereotypical thing about little boys compared to the little girls? Who's the batter? Want to be like that? Which one misbehaves more, boys or girls? <laughs> What's the stereotypical idea about preachers? Go ahead. You can say it. That's fine. Okay. Long-winded. Work one day a week. Well, that's true. Okay. <laughs> and what are they always after? Money. Okay. So we have stereotypical ideas that we basically say, and true or false, but we say this characterizes the person. Look at the passage from this point of view. What should be the stereotypical or actual, the actual stereotypical case of what characterizes believers? What should be their predominant trait or characteristic? Looking at it from that point of view, let's, let's explore the greatest of the commandments. He's asked that. Jesus responds in verse 29. And, and you all know this. You've studied this before. What does Jesus run to? What, what does he use to give an answer? God's word. Okay, do you remember where? Anybody have it marked down? You got the, the passage? He's going to quote from which book? Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he's going to be quoting the first few verses. He is quoting what is often called the Shema passage. It is the basic passage, and I want to, and I want to, I want to state it the way it would state in the original. He says, the first of all the commandments is this, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim is one Yahweh. Okay, now that there's interesting, the verbiage there is, or the wording there is very interesting. Yahweh the covenant name is one Elohim. Elohim is another name for God, but if you remember, Elohim is plural. Okay? The Lord, our God, okay, 
Because he is so magnificent and great, he, God, God is called God's all in one. He is one Lord, one Yahweh, one covenant maker. And so when Jesus makes this response, he's quoting a passage. And if you remember anything about the Shema passage, what was the Orthodox Jew of Jesus' day? What did they do with this passage every day? They recited it. It was their morning ritualistic prayer that they would recite this. This is something that they heard every single day. Every day they would remind themselves of this thought. Which, by the way, if you're saying this every day, what would be the danger of saying something like this on a daily basis? It would become too familiar. It would become ritualistic. And it would kind of be something we say, but it, it doesn't sink in. And so Jesus is talking to them, and he's going to make that comment. And so just looking at that, all, just that information alone, he is confirming the Old Testament as something that he finds authoritative. He is saying that God has never hidden God's will from people. You want to know what God wants from you? Well, God told you all the way back in the law for hundreds and hundreds of years. The will of God is not something that's a mystery. It's been known for a long time. This is the most important thing that God wants from us, that we would love him with all our heart, mind, and soul. And so he makes that clear. He is in this passage, using this passage, he is describing God. The Lord Yahweh, our Elohim, is one. What does that tell you about God? If you were a Jew, you would think this every day. What about your God? What's that? He's, he's one. He's one. He's, and again, you're living in a culture where there's many, many gods, and the, the emphasis is we have a monotheistic God. He isn't one of many. He's not the king of all the gods. He is... Uh, you know, we, we, It is so ingrained in our mind, we forget the impact of this to people when they first heard it. He is the only God. He is the unique one. And not only is he unique, he is the, he's got unity like no other divine being. Because he's plural yet singular. And so he's talking about the majesty of God. He's talking about his greatness. And he's telling these people as he's writing to them that basically you should be doing more than just learning a creed. You should have a certain conduct out of it. So he emphasizes. And he adds to the scripture of the Old Testament. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. Now back in Deuteronomy, we don't have that idea of with all your mind. You know, this is something that Jesus has expanded. And this is the first commandment. And so Jesus is making a comment. And if we just take out this phrase, and we could talk about loving God, loving God, loving God, which we should talk about. And we understand. But let me, let me come from a different point of view. Let me just make some observations about this loving God with all your heart, your mind, and soul. Number one, this isn't something that is whimsical. It's something reasonable for God to ask of us. It is extremely reasonable, not something whimsical. Because God is saying, this is what I want from you. First and foremost, I want you to love me. Why is that so reasonable? Because he's God. What's our relationship to him? We're a child. We're the creature. He's the creator. He made us. He is the one that we need for life, for breath. We should love him with all of our heart and mind or soul. He's the creator. And so this is, this is very reasonable that he in his uniqueness, he in his unity, he deserves this. This is something that is clear. This is something that is non-negotiable. 
This is something that is, this is an absolute love him. It is personal, not corporate. When he uses the words here, he says, you shall love. And it's not plural. It's each of you concept. Every one of you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. And so this whole idea of being personal is, okay, I'm to love the Lord, the God with my whole heart, not we are, and yet we are. But not we as a group are to love God. He is making it and saying, you personally, you personally, you personally, you, 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 each of us as individuals are to love the Lord thy God with all our heart and our soul. And yes, we're a corporate body, but individually we're to be ha- having that type of relationship with him. It's perpetual. It's not just to be done in public. Because he's going back to Deuteronomy, which says, all the days of your life, in the original text, uh, in the in the Deuteronomy 6 passage, all the days of your life. And remember what he says, and tell your children to love the Lord the God with all the heart, their mind, their soul. When you... Remember that passage of instruction? Tell this to your children when you rise up, when you sit down, when you sleep. In other words, how much of the day are we supposed to be in love with God? All day long. All day. And he's, he's basically saying not only all day, but in all phases and stages of our life. Because then that next verse talks about, and tell your children's children. In other words, if we're supposed to be passing on this loving the Lord that God, this is a perpetual thing in our life that we who are getting a little bit older and whose kids are already raised, we're still supposed to be loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And so Jesus is making this very emphatic that this is something he expects that we would do even in this modern age and it is to be total, not just partial compassion. That total is the idea that he four times he makes the comment with all, with all, with all, with all. And so he talks about with all your heart, your emotions, with, with uh, all your mind, that is your will, your understanding, with your spirit, okay? With your body as well, with all your strength. And so he's making this to to be inclusive of all aspects of our life, our whole being, that we're to be loving the Lord our God. Let Let me make a very important statement. What Jesus is pointing out is that when it comes to you and me and God, okay, that this idea that what is the most important thing we could do, we should be focusing on something that is relational, not ritual. A relationship, not just performing a ritual. And so he talks about this idea of having a love relationship. And the, and the Pharisee gets it. The Pharisee says, oh, yeah, that's, that makes sense. We're to love you emotionally, personally, in our heart. We're supposed to be appreciating you. We're supposed to be getting closer to you. And that's more important than offering sacrifices. That's more important than this temple. And, and by the way, what is going on the very time of this conversation? What are they in the midst of? The feast of the the Passover season, right? And so they're celebrating all these different feast days. And Jesus is saying more important than these feast days in the temple, in this ritualistic atmosphere, we're supposed to be having a personal walk with the Lord. Now, again, how do we describe that? What what do we, you know, what do we... How do we define, oh, we really love the Lord? One author put it down this way, and I appreciate what he said. He said, when it comes to loving the Lord our God, he says, maybe comparing a man's love for that one woman in his life gives insight into our love for God. Asking ourselves these questions. Is the Lord the all-consuming passion of my life? Do I have a deep, intense, and abiding affection for my Lord? 
Am I loyal to my God with an exclusive love? Do I resist and even oppose anything or anyone that seeks to do my Lord harm? Am I zealous to defend with graciousness my Lord's name and honor? Do I enjoy spending time with my Lord? Do I do, I do things that please the Lord and increase his joy? Do I brag on my Lord to other people? Do I tell my Lord that I do love him? Do I talk with my Lord as much as I'm, I can during the course of time? Those are all some very practical questions by making a comparison to say, do we actually have that relationship with the Lord? Well, Jesus says this is the most important. But let me add something that, that ties this together because you understand that. You already, many of you can say from your testimony that, yes, I do love the Lord. I want to keep growing in that area. But can I make this comment? That this love for God, Jesus, what he says in the follow-up, is to be practical, not mystical. Mysticism says this. If I love God, I'm going to go out into the woods, create a hut. I'm going to be there, and I'm just going to be me and God communing forever and ever and ever. Or I'm going to go and build pillar saints. I'm going to go build a pillar. I'll sit on top of that pillar in all weather, and I'm going to be a little bit closer to God than others who are on earth. This truly did happen historically. That the pillar saints would sit up on the top of the pillars, and they were going to be in constant, total communion with God, block out the rest of the world. Or they could go into a monastery, and in this monastery I'll, I will have this mystical experience where I just lock myself away from all people and other distractions, and I'll just think God, think God, think God. Jesus condemns that in this text. Jesus would say, that's not loving me. Because watch what happens as he does. He's been asked, what is, what's the question? What is the most important command? Jesus responds by saying, okay, the Shema passage. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Then Jesus says, and as he moves on, the second is like, but he wasn't asked about the second. But he says, and the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Watch what he says next. There is none other singular commandment greater than these. He has just stated there's one great command, but the, it goes right along with the second great command, and these two together form what is the greatest. And so what he has done is he has intertwined. He has made them interdependent. Love for God is going to be seen by what? Love for other people. He has just put them so that they are not necessarily you know, people above God, but they are so interrelated, he calls them a singular commandment. And yet he said they're two. And so Jesus, he says, okay, what should characterize my children? A love for God supremely, but also a love for neighbors that is genuine, genuine love, loving your neighbor genuinely. And again, I just, I can't emphasize it enough. He asks for one command, he gives two, and says that they're both together, the most independent. If I can put it in phrase, in certain phrases, that I try to write this out so I'd make it clear to you. To love God, you must love others. Would you agree with that by the text? Okay. Only, the only way to really love others 
is to first love God. Any claim to love God and yet ignore others is false. Displaying love to others is a practical way of displaying love to God. They're, they're, they're so intertwined. We can't love one another properly unless we love God. And, and if I say, but I, I love God, but I want nothing to do with you. I, I want to isolate myself and be only focused on God. Well, this text says that's not what God says is proper love. If you love me, you have to love those who are made in my image. You have to somehow reach out to them. You have to somehow to, to, to work with them and to minister to them. These two loves do not contradict each other. I'm going to love God to the point that I'm so in love with God I don't have time for other people. That's a contradiction. And this, is a, this passage is you can't live that way. You can't be genuine to love God and then ignore other individuals or whatever you do. And prevent, they don't prevent one from another. Oh, I'm so much in love with other people and minister to other people, I have no time to talk with God. It, it, something's phony then. Something is not genuine. In the genuine, care, the genuine believer, there is supposed to be this characterizing you and me, a love for God that is shown by our love towards other people. And so he quotes in the, the next text, he, verse 31, he quotes from the book of Leviticus, and it's chapter 19, verse 18, for your information, that he says, You shall love thy neighbor as yourself. There is none other greater commandment than the two of these things. And the natural question that should arise from every single one of us who reads this, or the Jews who have heard them, or probably the disciples, would be the first question that they would ask, should ask is, Who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus has already... Oh, by the way, do, do remember this. The Jewish thinking and teaching of that time, who is your neighbor? How did they understand Leviticus 19? When it says, love thy neighbor, who was inclusive to your neighbor? Jews. Jews. Other Jews. Other Jews in good standing. Period. Non-Gentiles, Samaritans, you know, dog. Dogs would be their term. How did Jesus already answer, who is my neighbor? You, you all know this one, right? The Good Samaritan. He's already answered that question, who is my neighbor? And he's, he's made it very clear. The people who are unlovely, people who are in need, people of different relationships and, and backgrounds. So that, that's not the question. But the question that we should ask right now at this point is, how how is... Love for neighbor displayed. Do you want to see something interesting? Hold your finger here and go back to Leviticus 19. Go back with me, Leviticus 19, where he is quoting the text from, where he is bringing it out. And in Leviticus chapter 19, it is really interesting to see if you read it and understand from this point of view. This is the text where you shall love your neighbor as thyself, he says in the middle of the chapter. Just walk with, some, with me through some of the verses. And say, okay, in that very text, how were they to treat one another? How were they to treat their neighbors? Interesting, just to get a sense of what is, how does real love be work out towards one another. Go to verse 10. 
where he's talking to them. You shall not glean the vineyard, neither shall you gather every grape of your vineyard, but rather you shall leave them for the poor and the stranger, because I am the Lord your God. If you were going to say, this is biblical love, carrying out the Leviticus that Jesus quotes, passage of loving your neighbor, what would you say is part of loving your neighbor? How is that shown? Summarize verse 10 for me. Showing care for who? To the poor. Showing care for the poor. Go to verse 11. How do you show loving your neighbor? What don't you do? You, you guys do have this open, right? Okay. You don't, don't do what? Don't steal. Don't lie about your neighbor. Don't tell falsehoods about them. Okay. One to another. Okay. Uh, let's jump down to verse 13. If you love people properly, when it comes to business dealings, what do you do? Or what do you don't do? You don't cheat people. Okay, you deal fairly with them. You're just in your business dealings. Okay, verse 14. If you love the way God wants you to love your neighbor, what do you do? Okay, you don't curse them. Okay, you don't belittle them. You don't mock them. You, you, don't, you don't try to do something that would harm them or who? The blind? Okay. So how do you treat people with disabilities? You, with respect, with graciousness, with care. You, know, you, just, you, you don't just walk away from them. You don't do something that's harmful. Um, again, verse 15 would be that same type of an idea. Being just in your dealings, your judgments, your, your matter of dealing with people, being respectful, etc., etc., Okay, verse 16. If you really love the way God wants you to love, then what do you, what do, you do with your mouth? You don't, yeah, you don't go gossiping. Good, good. Okay, don't go gossiping. You know, don't go saying things. The second half where in the King James it has the idea, uh, neither shall you stand against the blood of thy neighbor. Literally, let's put it this way. Don't, don't do harm to your neighbor. Don't do anything that's physically harmful to them. Um, verse 17, okay. You, you don't have bitterness towards an individual, okay? Might you speak to a neighbor that you have to rebuke or confront? Is there, does love do that? Verse 17. Yes, it does. But you speak with wisdom and grace, and so you're going you're gonna to be gracious to help out in, in, instead of uh, being, being uh, cruel and ungracious. In verse 18, just to say, let's just stop there. You shall not do what if somebody's hurt you? Okay, verse 18, you're not going to hold a grudge. You're not going to seek revenge against the individual. So Jesus, Jesus has picked a passage from the Old Testament that gives a lot of practical ways of how they were to treat their neighbors. And he says, this is what we're supposed to do. So he brings it into this era. And he said, he's preaching. He says, love the Lord thy God as you do yourself. You meet your needs. You care for yourself. And he's put the two together and said, this is it. This is the one thing. This should characterize my children. Now, what's interesting is how Jesus builds upon this in the next few hours, the next few days. Go to John chapter 13 as we wind down. John chapter 13 is like two days later, three days later, Jesus is in the upper room. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And what does he reiterate with them? John chapter 13, jump down to, uh, let's jump down to verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that you do what? That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall what? 
all men know that you are my disciples. If you... Okay, again, we're supposed to be characterized by this compassion of one another. Chapter 15. He's continuing that evening in discussion. He says it again, verse 17. These things I command you that you do what? That you love one another. Go a little bit further. Chapter 17. He's praying for the group. And in chapter 17, verse 21, he says, Father, that they all may be, and he's talking about not only the ones that believe, but those who will believe in the future, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. That they show a compassion, a love that will be a gospel witness. In Romans 13, he talks about, Oh, no man anything but love. And he goes on and says, this is the greatest fulfillment of the law. Let's close with this passage, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, John who wrote the epistles of the gospel writes this in his latter days and he describes real compassion and he gives us an example. He tells us how we're able to do this. John chapter, 1 John chapter 4 verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, serve others. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to what? Love one another. And it's more than just talking about it. It's more than just quoting it. It's more than just saying, okay, let's sing a song about loving God. It's shown in practical ways of loving. You know, you and me in fellowship afterwards, loving one another. You and me. And listen, you, you, you want to display some love? You want to you reach out to some people? And trying to visit, so there's just so many who are struggling right now. Just so many of brothers and sisters who are discouraged, who are, who are unable to come because of a lot of the people we're mentioning for prayer. Unable to come because of their physical conditions. And repeatedly, in the last couple of weeks in visiting with so many of these people, we have heard, my wife and I have heard the statement over and over, we thought that we were forgotten by the church. You know, do people, do people, do they pray? Yes, I assure you, they're praying. Yes, I can assure you. You, you want to be an encouragement? You want to love some folk this week, next week? You want to go and be, be a blessing to them? See, Pastor Allen, we've compiled a list of a large number of folk that could use some loving on. That maybe you would say, I'll go and visit one of them. I'll go and visit one of them. I'll contact one of them. And just let them know I'm praying for them. Just let them know that you, that you care. Just let them know that if you can stop by and do something small. It, it is just phenomenal how much that contact with one of you can make a huge difference. And that is a practical way of us loving the Lord by loving those around us that God has united us in a body. Love one another. By this you can draw to love God even more. What a phenomenal statement that he gives. But it better characterize you and me. That's what he calls us to do. Let this be the characteristic. Love the Lord and love others.